0: of the Roden Fellows, handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows.
1: Hi, I'm Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Donovan
2: Dooley from North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm Vinnie Shabazz
1: from Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana.
0: Hello, everybody. I'm coming to you from ESPN Studio in New York City, greatest city on earth. Uh, we've got a special show for you today. The senior vice president and editor-in-chief of The Undefeated, Kevin Merida, will join us to talk about everything from the NBA playoffs to Meek Mill to his career in journalism. And then we're going to talk to international thoroughbred broker, try saying that five times real fast, Greg Harbert. He'll take us through this year's Kentucky Derby favorites and what it takes to make it in the industry and how Derby history is black history. But first let's take a look at the news each week. The fellows and I predict the stories that everybody's going to be talking about next week.
1: So I think everyone is going to be talked about next week is whether Masai Ujiri is going to be giving up his position as president of basketball operations of the Toronto Raptors to LeBron James who seems to own that team they're not there mentally when he's on the court I don't know why I think that's what nine straight that uh he's won in Toronto I just don't know what's going on with the Raptors
2: uh, I think everybody's going to be talking about how Philadelphia, how the Philadelphia 76ers have come back from their 0-2 deficit, um to defeat the Boston Celtics and advance to the Eastern Conference Finals.
1: I definitely believe that the Kentucky Derby will definitely be the topic of discussion, especially church showdowns. So look out for the results.
0: Uh, this time next week, I think people are going to be talking about the Golden State Express and how basically Houston has shot blanks again. Uh, in two weeks, The Undefeated will celebrate its second anniversary. And in this short amount of time, the site has won critical acclaim and has attracted a team of talented young writers, producers, and administrators. All this happened under the guidance of Kevin Merida, who joined ESPN uh, 2015 as the senior vice president and editor-in-chief of the site. But this is only the tip of the iceberg uh, for Kevin who also manages enterprise and investigation coverage, which includes E60 and Outside the Lines. Kevin came to ESPN from the Washington Post. We're going to get into that a little later. And he's also co-authored two books, one about Clarence Thomas and the other about former President Barack Obama. Uh, Kevin's on the line with us today to talk about uh, a great career and how he manages some of the hottest stories at the intersection of race and sports. Uh, hey, Kevin, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, thank you, Bill, and uh, to the Roden fellows, glad glad uh, you guys are uh, with us.
0: <laughs> yeah. hey, hey, Kevin, uh, Isaiah is going to ask you a question, but they, I was going to ask it, but they bumped me off because they said I was too old to ask this question, right? And hey, just, just FYI.
1: It was, Mr. Roden. Mr. Roden, it was only, we tried to clarify it.
0: No, no, you don't. I was going to ask the question. You said, no, I couldn't do it because I'm too old. So, Isaiah, ask asked the question. And Kevin, you could tell if you think that I was too old to ask this question. Go ahead, Isaiah. <laughs> uh,
1: okay. Honestly, Mr. Roden. so we tried to give you a chance. We said if you could name three songs by them, you could you could have asked it. But all right, here we go. Here we go. So, uh, Mr. Merida, you know, I was scouring Twitter the other day, and I saw that you retweeted a photo of Gucci Mane, Robert Kraft, and Meek Mill. I wanted to get your thoughts on that triad. Uh, I thought
3: it was an interesting thing. It looked like, looked like Meek and, and Gucci were having a nice little little battle back and forth, and, and Kraft looked like he was perplexed to know, what are these guys talking about? So, that was my takeaway. You know, people are looking at Robert Kraft and wondering what Robert Kraft they're seeing. You know, he had his arms around Meek Mill. He was associated with um, him getting released from prison, that was a cause celeb by many athletes and other celebrities. Now he's at courtside. Before that, you know, he was, he flew the, the kids and families of the Parkland, uh, high school to the march, uh, gun control march in Washington, D.C. So aligning himself with some, some causes. And, you know, here's somebody who was previously thought to be close to Trump. And so maybe they're, you know, is a is a relationship there. Uh, I know our own Justin Tinsley is looking into to just you know the whole evolution of the meat meal story, and that's part of it too. The, the, how did how did Robert Kraft
2: come to be associated with with meat? It's interesting that you say that, uh, Kevin. We um, we had a conversation on our podcast a few weeks ago. We said. kind of sticking with the entertainment. We we said Beyonce belongs in the pantheon of greatest performers ever after her performance at Coachella. Um, But Isaiah, you know, thinks Kanye belongs on this list. Um, I kind of want to know what do you think and how crazy is Isaiah for thinking Kanye belongs on this list?
3: I feel like when you get into the greatest conversations, you really got to earn that, you know. I probably would lean more toward Beyonce than Kanye. I know time changes things, right? As soon as you have something that steps on your art, and and Kanye's having his own moment with some of his comments about slavery and and his knowledge of history and and everything related to his TMZ interview. I think people are looking at him in a different way, and that sometimes does impact people's art. You know, Bruce Springsteen, you know, there are a bunch of artists, and Bruce Springsteen is known for really mixing his music with his politics and social activism. You know, some fans are good with that and and other fans are not so good with that. I think his fans are mostly good with it, but but it's always a dangerous thing when you when you have art that you're known for and then if your politics don't don't seem to align with that then people start looking at you differently. You know, it's interesting, you don't know, hear Beyonce doesn't reveal very much about herself. It's one of the one of the fascinating things about her career is we don't know a whole lot about Beyonce. She doesn't do many interviews uh, and I doubt if she would ever have any Kanye-type TMZ interviews. You know, so I was thinking about this, Matt. You raised it in the context of the discussion around Kendrick Lamar, who won the Pulitzer, and, and he doesn't have a long body of work, right? Uh, but already people are talking about him as the greatest, you know, uh, on, on the all-time greatest list, if not the greatest rapper in history. He's in the conversation, Right. And and some people are saying, oh, wait, too fast. But now he's got a Pulitzer. You know, he's got a kind of an award that others in the genre, whether, and this goes from jazz all the way up to hip-hop, do not have. And so it makes people kind of talk about him in a different way. You know, you could argue that some people get to greatness quickly, and it's also, you know, when you're in these these times, I don't know how many of you guys know. You guys are young. You know about Cool Herc and some of the, you know, old the, mm-hmm. the, the rap If you if you study hip hop, maybe you go back there and you know about some of the guys that didn't get credit and and fame and notoriety and certainly not the richest. Hey,
0: but Kevin, they didn't even know about James Brown. Now, my you know because they oh they, come they on, I get okay, No, 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 they didn't know. I I asked them, did they know Papa's yeah, got a Papa's quiet, got a because hey hey, hey guy, listen, my show, my show, be quiet. So they said so when they were telling me, I was too old to ask you the question about. Gucci Mane, and which, by the way, now that Donovan asked you a question, is that a generational question? I mean, is somebody too old to ask that question?
3: No, not at all. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't believe in age, right? I, I believe in relevance. I think you're only as old as you, as you feel and and live and be right in this world. I mean, you know, I, I look at it like. As long as I'm here and I'm and I have like mental faculties, and even if I don't have the physical, you can still learn. You mm-hmm. know, and that's that's what we're here to to do is to keep learning, man. I I learn from you guys. What, whatever I don't know about Gucci Mane, and I can learn from Donovan <laughs> and Isaiah and Mania. You know, one thing about being around the undefeated, we have such an eclectic mix of of people, and we cross so many generations. You know, hopefully they learn some stuff from from people like me and Bill who've been around. And, and I learned a lot from Justin Tinsley and Aaron Dodson and Rhiannon and Walker and, and, and some of our young people. So, you know, we're all here to learn, and that's, that's what makes
2: it, it fun.
0: But they should know about James Brown, though, right? I mean, you
2: know. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah we we know, right? about know about James
1: Brown. We know about James Brown. We know about oh, James oh, oh, now
0: you know about James <laughs> Brown. You didn't know about James Brown off the mic. Now you know about James Brown.
1: To be honest, Mr. Roden, it was it was your singing. It was I couldn't understand, didn't even know what you were saying. You were singing. It was a lot for me. I couldn't couldn't okay. take
0: it all on, and I just decided and I just decided I didn't all know. Right. Okay, <laughs> Mania, Mania can, we let, can we let Mania go, please?
3: I don't know what was uh, established between you guys off mic, but um I think I think look, James Brown's got a movie made after him, and someday Kendrick Lamar and. And and Beyonce, they're gonna have movies made after them. I don't think Gucci gonna have one made after him, but <laughs> but I think some of those yeah. others will.
0: Hey, let me ask you this, Kevin. You got a
3: best selling book, though.
1: Hey, oh, There you does. go. That's
3: a best selling book. There you go. So that that's they're 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 current and they're relevant. Do you think uh, Kendrick Lamar deserved a Pulitzer? I do. Even I can see he's a genius. You know, you know, it's great that the Pulitzer board awarded Kendrick and. And it's also, you know, the people who were the jury looking at the music. There were there were people who studied music, you know, and and it was pretty unanimous from what I read among the jury, um, and also at the board level. I think that they were recognizing that he was doing something in his genre. And you have to you can only evaluate in the genre. I heard lots of other people and debating and 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 saying, did he deserve it? Is it too quick? Do we need a longer body of work and and what about the jazz musicians and the great r&b people and others particularly in black music who weren't honored and and that's for to me that's a separate debate you know we've all seen in in various fields african americans passed over and and others passed over um for accolades but that doesn't that shouldn't stop us from assessing like right now in contemporary music of the music that is a goal, the, the global influencer, the number one global influencer, you know, that here's the master, right? I think, I think people say he's at the top of his game in this game. So I, I was good with that, you know, and I thought it was a, a great, inspiring choice, and I hope others, I hope, I hope Kendrick is not the last person unexpected who gets a her for his genius.
0: Our guest is Kevin Merida. He's a senior vice president and editor-in-chief. Of the undefeated. While we're on this 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 thing of um, greatness and that, well, what's your standard uh, for greatness? I, I heard an interesting debate or a debate yesterday. Uh, somebody was saying that Ben Simmons, you know, the 76 uh, is, wow, this guy's great. And I think the person who, I think it may have been um, Rick Mahorn, was saying, well, hold, hold, hold on. I mean, what what's greatness? I mean, the guy, he's had a great rookie year, but don't we need, I think you mentioned the word body of work. I mean, if Ben Simmons is great, what is what is LeBron James, <laughs> you know? So what, what what's your standard of, of greatness, whether it's in, you know, sports or, or writing or whatever? What's your standard of greatness?
3: You know, I think Ben Simmons looks like, you know, based on his rookie year, he looks like he's special, you know? And I think we can say he runs the floor, looks like he has command of the game, uh, great basketball IQs. You know, seems like he makes players on the court better. Oh, he's been compared to Magic Johnson, a, a Magic Johnson type player. And I think that's a good comparison. I mean, you know, he doesn't have a shot, but you know, if you remember, you know, some of us older heads remember Magic really didn't have a shot. He he kind of developed a set shot early in his career, but he didn't have it at first, and that was another part of his repertoire that came later along with everything else. But when you can get to the hoop the way Ben Simmons can, and you're 6'10", and you can pass the way he passes and run the floor,
1: I, I think that you've, you've put yourself in position to be great. So you mentioned uh, Ben Simmons, and I know a lot of has been made of the Ben Simmons versus Donovan Mitchell Rookie of the Year debate. So I kind of wanted to get your opinion on what do you think is the biggest storyline of the playoffs thus far? Is it Taye Rozier and his emergence or, you know, uh, LeBron's complete domination of the Toronto Raptors, so uh, yeah. What do you think?
3: I mean, first of all, I would say in the in the if I were voting for rookie year, I would vote for Donovan Mitchell. I mean, I think oh wow you know, he's, had a, he's had a special season, and you know Philly certainly defied some expectations, but Utah did too, and he carried the game. He he has a great skill set, and I probably would go in that direction. It's, it's certainly a close vote. You know, the storylines are great. I mean, LeBron's storyline, he keeps surprising you and, and keeps, you know, putting his team on his back at this stage of his career, I think, is the, the greatest thing. He has to play a lot of minutes. It's not surprising he would say how tired he was. I think this team is is not a particularly strong Cavs team. They're running through the Toronto Raptors, and um, they were tested against the Pacers, playing like 40-plus minutes a game and putting up incredible numbers. And so, hey, his legacy is cemented, and and all we'll be arguing is how far up he is and will we give him the GOAT award or not. Uh, I'm not prepared to do that myself. And I still think Jordan, you know, for what Jordan has done, is still the GOAT to me. But But LeBron has done some amazing things, I look at it like as amazing as all that he's done, let's see where it ends, you know? If they don't win a championship, then then it's another remarkable series of individual performances and things that didn't lead to a championship.
0: Is that a major thing for you, uh, championships?
3: I don't think it's the only thing that defines your greatness, but since we're talking LeBron and Jordan, i am just pointed out that Jordan is 6-0 in finals. He left and, and, and retired and went to pursue a sport that he had no previous professional experience in and then came back and three-peated, you know. Right. So right. I, I do think that he has separated himself and in both the way the rules were, a lot more physical defenses on guys, more hand-checking. You know, the, the NBA game now is a lot, I'm going to say, softer and a lot more genteel than it was. Right. I mean, we, we have all of these things like Hostile act and all kind of <laughs> right. phraseology right. that goes on when people look the wrong way at somebody right. or right. does something you, you can you can you can't do much physically. Right. Um, I would hand out a lot of Tony Awards to some of the stars of the game for for, for acting out there. Yeah. We've reinvented what it means to travel. We, we we've taken the Euro step. We've brought it to the playground so people can take you know two <laughs> three four. Right. Steps, you know, they, can and they call it,
0: They have a name for you know. it. They call it the Euro step. Well, we call it traveling.
3: Well, we got step back, and I and and this is you no. Know, I love watching James Harden. I think there's not a better one on one player in the game today. You know, he's a nightmare to guard. But you know, even NBA players laugh and joke about his step back which is an official travel, but there's no way they can put the genie back in the bottle. The NBA can't stop him from doing it <laughs> unless they want to treat him like like the NBA treated Allen Iverson because there was a period when Allen Iverson, when he was doing his crossover and yanking people, man, he was pulling that way back, and then they finally started calling travels on him.
2: Um, I kind of want to switch gears to kind of talk a little bit about why do you think LeBron holds such a psychological advantage over the Raptors one and two, I kind of want to know, I know that you're from the D.C. area. you've been covering, you know, been with the Washington Post for a minute. Um, do you think there's anything the Wizards can do to get out of mediocrity moving forward?
3: Well, I I think that LeBron is kind of the Raptors kryptonite, you know. I I didn't believe in them, even as the number one seed. You know, some of that is in their head now, you know. That they that they are underachievers in the playoffs, and they it's like they can't get that you know monkey off their back. So it's I don't know what the curse is, the Toronto version of the curse of the Bambino, when the Red Sox could never get it done, and you know Chicago Cubs couldn't get it done. I just in this modern NBA context, I don't know if the Raptors are going to get it done. You Mm -hmm. know, and I don't mean this time around. I just mean period. It feels like. I'm on a thread. We call them regular season guys, you know, and they, they're they regular season guys. I mean, you know, there's not alpha all in that team, you know, in my opinion. It's, you know, DeRozan is as good as he is as a player. He's not a guy that you see just taking over a game and carrying it. And Kyle Lowry, that speaks for itself. And, you know, the Wizards could have beat them. You know, the Wizards took them to six. And they were in every game. I think the Wizards. You have to wonder a lot of stories this week about and stats and stuff all over social media about Ernie Grunfeld being like maybe like the third. There are only a couple people, other GMs, who have been in franchises longer than Ernie Grunfeld, and and all of those like Pat Riley, Danny Ainge, they have they have uh, championships, and you know I think. The fact that Ernie continues and, you know, at least reportedly um, it was um, published, Washington Post and others, that he had been given a contract extension, which mm-hmm. wasn't really divulged. You know, a lot of uh, people are wondering about that. You know, what what has he done to earn a contract extension? You know, what has he done to not earn a firing at this point? Right. You know, right. right. Yeah, he did the and, same that, and, I, and I think... I think without that, without some kind of new strategy and new, new talent, I'm not sure the Wizards get better. I mean, you know, John Wall had an interview where he, he mentioned that he thought that they need athletic big and some other pieces. You know, I think, I think Wall and Bill are really two strong pieces, but they have to get better. To me, Bill is somebody who is, is not a clutch end of game guy and Wall where he may have approved his jump shot and hasn't gotten to a point where you can count on it. He, he's also somebody who doesn't a lot of times finish at the rim. You know, he doesn't get the foul call or make the shot. Too often he's on the floor going to the rim. So I think he's got to get better in that aspect of his game. But they are two great players. I mean, I, I use the term great. They're two very good players. They're two all-stars. But that's not enough to get through the East because next year Boston will be back. You know, barring injuries, Boston looks good now. And <laughs> right. they have, like, an abundance of talent. If they get, you know, Kyrie and Gordon Hayward on the team they have, they look like the favorite of the East. And the Pacers are coming. They look strong.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, Kevin, in, in, the, in, the, in the few minutes um, we've got left, I want to get into the journalism because you've, you've had an extraordinary career uh, in journalism. you know, you, you run a, a newsroom at the Washington Post and I'm just wondering now you, I don't know how you felt. I mean, as long as I spent at the Times, uh, being uh, at the Undefeated is somewhat liberating, you know. And I was just wondering what you feel the difference is. I mean, you, you ran a ran a newsroom at the Post. What, what's it been like, the difference been like running an operation uh, like the Undefeated at ESPN?
3: You know, when you're at a place like the Post, it has, and you know from being at the Times, Bill, and it has a long track record, a tradition, a culture, a way of excelling and continuing on from, you know, generation to generation. And in the years in which I was in management, we were in there trying to change the culture because we're in the part of the the digital era and trying to adapt to the changes, the media landscape, just how, how people are consuming media now digitally you know, you go to the undefeated and it's, first of all, it's a startup. It's it's yours. It's not a culture. You know, you, you create it. You know, you start from scratch. And, you know, the first thing you do is just trying to build from within, you know, and create an inspiring place where we can do work that's important and matters. And it's also inspiring to build a staff of people who look like you, you know, and, and it's different. The the conversations are different, the, the laughter is different, the jokes, the playfulness, a lot of the intangible things. And the feeling of just, you know, hey, you can be who you are and be yourself without being judged, you know, in in, in the way that sometimes I think journalists of color feel that they're under a microscope in their in big, predominantly white newsrooms. So we're under ESPN, ESPN is very big, and that presents its own because how to operate essentially a startup, as we described, focused on African-American, African-Americans American African as a target audience and operate under this big, colossal worldwide leader of sports. And so part of that challenge is keeping your own identity, developing a culture, developing talent. I think I will say a lot of the talent we had at this feed would not be here if it did not exist. So we've, we've brought something to ESPN that they would not have had access to had we not existed. And and so that is the gift among the gifts that we give, and we're creating something special that you can point to. And we get the benefits of being under a big place with lots of resources with the ability to collaborate and form partnerships and alliances and, and do cool things, you know. And so – I think it's been great—a great, great experience—and it's—it's—it's it's also like we're unburdened by a lot of what happened before. You know, right, right. we can try stuff. If it doesn't work, you know, shoot, move on, do something else. You know, we don't have to be wed to anything. And we've had a lot of success—an uncommon amount of success in two years. To the point, I—I I actually. Think I've been here four years, <laughs> you know. <laughs>
0: right. so it does it's seem a common like, right. amount of
3: success, right. you know. And 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 part of the success is right here on on this in this podcast, the Roden Fellows. That's success. Right. It, it wasn't created before. It doesn't exist anywhere else. And we created it pretty quick. But it's just like everything else we've done. You know, we have had the, the former president brought him to an H, the largest HBCU. We had Common and Serena in a conversation for an hour long TV special. We've had multiple events and we took over the magazine and curated and the special issue on black athletes. We've done a lot of things in a short amount of time. So now it's just kind of like keep building on those success and keep, you know, getting better.
0: Yeah. Um, so are, people
3: will one day um, say that we're great, you know, I, I, and they won't well, be debating that.
0: Head well, in heading that direction. And and in large part, Kevin, it, it's uh, the, the everything that, that has been accomplished is because of you uh, as as the um uh, as the leader of of the organization, so I think you have got to get a lot of uh, of of props uh, for that. Uh, our our guest has been Kevin Merida. Uh, he's the senior vice president and editor in chief of the Undefeated. You know, Kevin, listen, man, you got to promise to come back because we need to do just a whole a whole thing show with you because we haven't even got to the the books and the difference between book writing and journalism. Uh, so you got to you, you as promises in front of everybody that you will be back on this show. Cause uh, uh, I'm happy
2: happy to do that for sure. Yeah, man. And happy to
3: do that.
0: Talk more hoops. We will talk a little bit about Jordan versus Kareem uh, and standards (laughs) of greatness.
3: I love Kareem. You know, (laughs) I, I I love Kareem. Believe me. Um, He's one of my favorite athletes and, and he's a, a brilliant guy. I love that he's an intellectual, you know, author of 14 books and, and, I've interviewed him a couple times myself. I know you have many times, Bill. He's mm-hmm. he's really a model for a black athlete in every dimension. And he's still, hey, he's still the all-time leading scorer yeah. in NBA history. So That's he's got that record. <laughs> Nobody's broken it yet. That's right. You know?
0: Hey, hey, Kevin, listen, man. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. This has been great and enlightening. I hope the kids, the students are taking, the fellows are taking notes because uh, this is Uh, Lesson number one in journalism. But Kevin, thank you so much, man. And uh, let's uh, keep grinding. Hey,
3: thank thank you. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, guys. Mania, Isaiah, Donovan. Thank you, guys, for all you do. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right.
0: That was was Kevin Merida, who's the senior vice president and editor-in-chief of The Undefeated. Uh, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the Kentucky Derby, past and present, with horse racing expert and international thoroughbred broker, Greg Harvard. Stay
2: tuned.
0: You talking down on us, we live it up. You talking down on us, we live
4: it up. I'm talking way up, way up. I'm talking way up, way up. I'm talking way up, way up. I'm
1: talking way up.
0: By the time you hear this, the winner of the 144th Kentucky Derby will be known, and you'll see countless photos of those infamous derby fedoras and hats. You may also notice the small number of black folks at the event. This is probably because most people in the horse racing industry, from top jockeys to horse brokers, are not black. But that was not always the case. Uh, Blacks used to dominate the sport. Greg Harbutt, international thoroughbred broker and expert, is one of the few African-Americans currently in the business of analyzing and predicting the success of racehorses. Uh, you can say it's in his blood because he's not only passionate about the work, his grandfather and great-grandfather were in the horse business. Uh, Greg's on the line with us today uh, to t- talk to us about the, the Kentucky Derby and how he's working to bring more African-Americans into the racing industry. Hey, uh, Greg, welcome to the show.
4: Hello, hello, uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Uh,
2: I've read a lot of your work and I just feel honored, uh, to partake in this.
0: I mean, well, the, the pleasure is definitely mine.
2: Greg, I kind of want, I kind of want to get into a little bit about, you know, the race coming up. Um, people are saying that Justify, um, Oro, is that how, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Oro. Uh, Boldoro. Uh, Oro and Magnum Moon are the favorites this year at the Derby. Do you agree with that sentiment?
4: You know, all three are very special horses. Uh, You know, they have the race record. Uh, They're the the hot horses. Uh, But, you know, in the Kentucky Derby, uh, that's a large field. It's usually a 20-horse field. Sometimes the best horses uh, do not win because of the trip or just the post-position draw. Uh, So what I usually try to do is find value in that race uh, that you otherwise don't see in normal races because of reduced field sizes. Uh, So my selection this year, if he has a good trip, and things go accordingly, I think my boy Jack at 30-1 to 1 should uh, give a good account of himself. So I'm actually going to go with that horse.
0: Mm. My boy Jack, I'm taking that down. Is,
2: is,
0: <laughs> is the derby going to be stressful for you this year? Uh, are, have you been involved in the buying or selling of, of any of the horses we're going to see on the track?
4: Usually it is, but this year is sort of a down year for me. I don't have any clients uh, with any horses directly. Mm. Uh, in the race or any of the races on the undercard so this is a year that i'm just going to enjoy it uh, for the sport as well as with my family which i uh, normally uh, am unable to do due to my schedule and the rigors uh, around this time
1: was your family excited that you were following the footsteps of your grandfather and great grandfather can you just talk to us a little bit about how you got involved with horse racing
4: well as you mentioned uh my family's been involved i'm a third generation uh horseman uh, my great-grandfather I uh, received a lot of notoriety because of his relationship with uh, Man O' War, who's considered to be the best racehorse of all times. Uh, and my grandfather uh, worked with a lot of famous horses and ultimately ended up becoming an owner and a breeder and actually had a horse that he owned and bred that ran in the 1962 Kentucky Derby. So growing up, I heard all of the historical information about my family and things of that nature, but I've always had a great love for horses since their early age. But it was only up until about high school that I figured out that I could make a career out of this out of
1: something that I love, so that's how that came about so coming from the black community, you simply just don't see a lot of faces that look like ours in that field um of horse racing. I kind of wanted to know whether or not you experienced any pushback from our community when you first started working with horses, like where you I don't know how did you mention how young you were when you like first you know even rode a horse or uh I was probably about eight or 10 when I first, uh, actually got on a horse, you know, picked it up as a
4: hobby as far as riding horses at summer camps and things of that nature. I was probably about 18 when I started working into the business directly.
1: Okay. So when you first, you know, started to get into the industry, you know, did you experience any pushback from either friends or stuff like people just kind of making fun of you or anything like that? Any personal experience that you would want to share?
4: Yeah. You know, uh. That wasn't big on a lot of kids' radars, especially within the African-American community, uh, to be going into the equine uh, industry. You see that a lot more uh, from the Caucasian side as opposed to the African-American side. But luckily for me, you know, I had a lot of friends that really pushed me, you know, to follow my passion and uh, to go that route. But uh, you're absolutely correct. Uh, There's just not a lot of African-American kids or adults coming into the industry.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And and why is that, Greg? I mean, I know that's a that's a long, long, long uh, answer. But um, what happened? I mean, you've been involved in it. Your grandfather, your great grandfather, who used to dominate it. How hard has it been to recapture that momentum? And and what are you doing to to bring more African Americans into the business?
4: Uh, that's a that's a good question. Uh, when you look at the early history, uh, the first Kentucky Derby back in eighteen seventy five. Uh, the horse who won it was trained by an African American man by the name of Ansel Williams, and the jockey was Oliver Lewis. And early on, uh, African American horsemen, uh, dominated in our profession. We're really the history and the backbone of, of this sport. And about 1896, when you have Plessy versus Ferguson, is when you can begin to see the dynamics change, uh, within this sport. Uh, uh ever since then, uh, you know, we've sort of just been uh, pushed back further and further and further. And actually, in talking about the Kentucky Derby from 1921 to the year 2000, uh, there was no African-American horsemen or jockeys who had representation in the race as a trainer or a jockey. Well, so when you look at those statistics and you look at the overall costs associated with coming into the business, uh, there's just not a surplus of African-American owners uh to give business to trainers or bloodstock agents, things of that nature, uh, like myself. So the biggest biggest contributor, to what I say, is just a lack of owners who are actively participating uh, in the sport. Uh, some famous African-Americans who were involved in the early 90s were guys like Don King, uh, Barry Gordy, MC Hammer, uh, some national celebrities, but since then... Uh, there just hasn't been a surplus of, of, of younger African-American celebrities coming into the industry or, you know, younger professionals, business people, things of that nature.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you this. If a guy like you know Charles Stewart, you know, the great trainer or uh, Isaac Murphy, if they would have known then what we know today, is there anything that they could have done to maintain the dominance uh, that, that African-Americans had in the industry?
4: You know, from my personal standpoint, I think the deck was just so stacked against them. You know, obviously these guys are very talented, whether it come from a training standpoint or a riding standpoint. Uh, But let's talk about the jockeys, for instance. Those guys were at the height of their career when I say the rug was pulled out from underneath them. And basically what you had was white jockeys that were deliberately not riding to win, but riding against African-American jockeys the point that they would cause bodily harm to the jockey or horses uh, so when you're going up against those circumstances uh, there's not much that you can do uh, you know so in essence uh, you know white owners they didn't want their horses injured so they just stopped riding black jockeys mm.
2: so the, you know it wasn't an issue of talent or things of that nature it was just circumstances beyond them that's really interesting that you say that, Greg. I kinda kinda back to my question, something that you mentioned earlier with the entertainers and, you know, the young black businessmen and women that were in, you know, horse racing as owners. How do you think you can or people can get the interest of horse racing, you know, back up to appeal to these younger, successful African Americans like that are more known to have more influence in horse racing?
4: Uh, You know, the biggest thing is just getting people there. A lot of people don't come because they don't know anything about it. Uh, But I was just recently in Miami back in January, and they hold currently the world's richest race. It's a $16 million purse called the uh, Pegasus World Cup. And it was amazing to me. They teamed up with Club Live, which is a big nightclub in Miami. And uh, they had a lot of rappers to perform after the race. And a lot of people came out not necessarily to see the horse race, but because of the entertainers that were on the program after the race. And because people came out for that, they were able to get exposed to, you know, my industry and things of that nature. And a lot of people fell in love with it. So I just think it's, we need to do a better job of getting the word out and actually getting people to the track, the younger generation.
0: And that's the issue for the race, the, the industry in general, though, right? I mean, that they're trying to get young people in, in general
4: Yes, you know, the industry as a whole, you know, getting the uh, the younger generation, uh, you know, but with African-Americans, you know, I'm currently working on an endeavor now uh, where instead of bringing individuals in as sole proprietors, what I'm doing now is creating racing syndicates. Mm. And it brings, you know, people in. You come in for a small percentage, say 5% or 10% of a horse, and, you know, you bring people along slowly. Uh, you know, it's the same reward, things of that nature, but the risk, uh, and everything else is, is spread out as opposed to you being a sole proprietor on a horse. And that's uh, gone over very well.
1: What's the most expensive horse that you ever bought or sold?
4: Uh, the most expensive horse I've ever purchased is probably a $5 million horse. Mm-hmm. Why is the price five,
1: so high? $5 million. Wow.
4: Correct. Uh, the, the price, you know, when we go out and purchase a horse, as things that you look at such as confirmation, race record but the biggest contributing factor is the pedigree on the horse by pedigree you look at the mother's female family and you look at the uh the Cyrus, uh top end of the pedigree and basically what you're saying is based upon this pedigree this horse has the potential to run at an elite level so the better the pedigree the better your half brother half sister or full brother or full sister may be the more you're going to pay for a particular horse
1: So when you think of jockeys, I know just personally, I think of a small, short, white man. I wanted to know if women can be jockeys, too. And if so, why don't we see a lot of them, then? Because I've never seen a woman jockey
4: before. Historically and now, you know, racing has been dominated by men. Uh, We do have uh, female riders, and we've had some very good uh, female riders. Uh, But when you look at it, you know, horse racing is a contact sport. And, you know, uh, a a lot of owners in particular have issue with putting a female rider on a horse and she has to compete against a male who's generally bigger and stronger. So, you know, that's an obstacle that they have to overcome as a woman that they can compete uh, against the men. So, you know, there's just not as much opportunities for the female riders as it is the male riders.
0: Hey, uh, could you, could, uh, Greg, could you, um, develop that? Because I think a lot of people are surprised, uh, when you talk about, uh, racing as a contact sport. It is a lot more brutal than people realize, but could you develop that? Why, why is such a, a, a such a physical and, and, and contact oriented sport?
4: Uh, well, you know, you're dealing with 15, 1600 1, pound animals. You know, a typical jockey weighs anywhere between 105 to 115 pounds, but they're some of the strongest athletes Uh, Uh, pound-for-pound in the physical machines and I I don't know if you guys have ever watched a race but say the last 16th uh, in the deep stretch I mean those guys are using the whip and pressing down and bearing down on the horse to get him to exert himself uh, to maximum potential Uh, you know you also during the course of a race uh, you know you have to jockey for position things of that nature and you're basically driving and steering a 1600 pound animal so there's a lot of direct contact, and there's a lot of force that those guys have to use uh, to get the full potential out of a horse.
0: Yeah, I mean that's wow. what, that's what they call it jockeying for position. I mean, uh, I mean I've covered Correct. a lot of races, you know, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it, the the physicality is just unbelievable. Just just yeah, I, the
4: physicality I, is definitely there.
0: Oh, it's unbelievable! Just just before I let you go, um, I, I used to write a lot about just the the uh, cruelty aspect. Of the sport, um, in terms of everything from uh, the the breeding of horses, you know they're you know on these these spindly legs and all that. Ha- has that improved the, the sort of the race dra- drugs and you know a- a- you know e- and even you know sort of the the uh, the breakdowns that you see? Do you think that the industry has improved in that direction, or since you don't have like an eight bells or a you know a, you know like a dramatic death on the track has it kind of just been swept under you know under the uh, under the
4: rug no i think the industry has definitely improved and there's always room for for more improvement but one thing i do want to say in regards to that uh you know you're dealing with animals that cost millions if not multi-millions of dollars these animals receive some of the best care and you know they have some of the best employees in the world that are looking after them Uh, so a lot of times when you see an animal break down Uh, It's not necessarily from cruelty or lack of care. Uh, You know, sometimes it's just, you know, an act of God. Uh, The the medication reform, the welfare reform, uh, things have definitely gotten better, uh, I would say, within the uh, last 10 years. Uh, But there's always room for improvement in in any industry or any sport.
2: Greg, and then I kind of want to switch gears a little bit to, you know, kind of close it out. In an interview you did last year, we're rolling out online. You said if you could change anything in the world, you would work on violence and poverty. Do you have any idea of how you would go about doing this? America is one of the
4: richest nations uh, in the world, and I just think there's a lot more that we could do to boost up the economy for the uh, uh, lower to middle class. And I think, you know, if we boost the economy, we we provide a sustainable wage. Uh, I would think you would see a lot of violence and things of that nature go away. Uh, When when you look at a lot of crimes, it's petty crimes. And a lot of those times, those people aren't violent or, uh, you know, violent offenders and things of that nature, but it's just simply people trying to survive. Uh, So I think if we can get across the board, you know, in this country, which is a beautiful country, but if we could just get a sustainable wage and allow people, you know, to to make a living and provide for their families and things of that nature, I think you would see a lot of... uh, a, a lot of impact across the board.
0: Hmm. Well, keep our fingers crossed for, for that great day. Well, <laughs> uh, our guest has been uh, uh, Greg Harbutt. He's an international third thoroughbred broker. And, um, hey, Greg, thank you so much, man.
4: It was a pleasure to be on your show, and thank you guys for your time.
1: No, thank you. Right, I appreciate you coming in.
0: That's all the time we have for today's show. uh before we close out, Kanye West has been all over the headlines lately. His recent tweets and interviews about slavery being a choice of ruffled some feathers to say the least. What do y'all think about Kanye West's behavior? Is there any content you think he should read, watch, or listen to before he opens his mouth again
1: this is This is really uh this pains me to say, but um kanye he he definitely needs to do some more reading. I think he has a problem articulating himself. I don't think he meant like actual slavery being a choice. I think he more so meant mental slavery being a choice. But before he opens his mouth again, you should definitely read you know, Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, The Souls of Black Folks, W.B. Du Bois, Assata by Asada Shakur, just to name a few. I think Kanye definitely, definitely
2: needs to read $40 million slave. Um, that's a plug um, for Bill Road. Um, but yeah, obviously Kanye's behavior has been unacceptable. Um, I think he's just, you know, he's wilding out like Kanye does and I think he broke the last straw, uh, this time and I think he's not gonna ever recover from this. Um, so yeah.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with Donovan. I think it's gonna be really, really, really hard for Kanye to recover from this even though he keeps trying to, you know, reiterate what he was saying and try to clean up what he thinks. I, I really think he should read The Autobiography of Missionary Pittman. Uh, that's definitely a great read. And Their Eyes Are Watching God by uh, Zora Neale Hurston.
0: Yeah, my, my only thought is that this only proves that rappers could be Uncle Tom's, too. That's all we have time for today. If there's anything you'd like for us to cover, or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Rodenfellows. You can contact us directly. I'm at W.C. Roden.
1: Find me at St. Claude, I-I, that's S-T-C-L-A-U-D-E, I-I. You can find your boy
2: at Donovan Dooley, that's at D-O-N-O-V-A-N-D-O-O-L-E-Y.
1: You can find me at underscore Menea Shabazz.
0: Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows Podcast. The show is produced by Aaron with an E, Matthewson. Special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and Kyrie Williams. Get all the HBCU 468 podcast as well as The Plug, The Right Time with Bomani Jones, and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Join us next week for another HBCU podcast and don't forget to make The Undefeated your go-to site for a soulful look at sports and entertainment. Have a great week, everyone.